today our scripture reading will be from Genesis chapter 1, and I will be reading through chapter 13. Okay. Obviously, you're not awake. (laughs) I am reading Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. (laughs) Take a deep breath. (laughs) So please turn in your Bibles on your smartphones, or your not-so-smartphones, or your tablets, and follow along with me as we read the word of the Lord. I am reading from the English Standard Version. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, And there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there's seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Pam. Pam got me nervous. I didn't prep through chapter 13, so we're going <laughs> to... We would be here eating dinner if we were reading through chapter 13 tonight together. Um, but it would be profitable. It would. Reading the word of God alone is profitable. That's why we do it. That's why we have somebody come up here and read the word. Because even hearing it, if we left now today, if you were engaged listeners, you have to be engaged listeners, even if we left here now today, we have heard the word of God. You would leave here with truth that is life transforming and life altering. How many of you have your Genesis uh, book? Anybody with, yeah, quite a few. Yeah, we had about 50 out there. There's about five or so left. A lot of them got picked up if you want one. Uh, it's a copy of the ESV with a place for notes there. $10, they're out there, so grab one. How many of you kids have your little listeners? Anybody? I see, okay, I see a few, actually quite a few. Awesome, great, you got them. Excellent, those are to help our kids as well if they come to first service, something to work on as we uh, work through the sermon. Well, today we are in this series in which we are looking at the first 11 chapters of 
Genesis in this series. And these chapters, as we talked about, record this primeval, earliest history of the world, of the universe, and all things, including you and me. Last week, we talked about the foundational nature of this book, how much foundational, uh, how much of the foundation of our faith, what we know about God, about humanity, and our predicament, and God's grace and faith begins in Genesis. This book is our story. It's your and my story. The creation of and saving of a people, even though it's a story that was written by Moses some 3,500 years ago to a group of desert wanderers in a pagan world, (laughs) even though the setting was much different. I'm convinced there's going to be a lot for us here as we embark on this study, but ultimately we talked about this is a story about God, the God who created. And herein lies much of our challenge this morning. When we come to such a well-known and debated passage in Genesis, the creation, throughout the centuries, thoughtful Christians Thoughtful Christians who hold the Scriptures to be inerrant. That means God's uh, word without error in the original manuscripts. They've disagreed over the interpretation of the six days of creation. Just the way it has been forever. Some have held that the creation of the world was done by God in six 24-hour literal days. And they love the Lord and love the Bible. Believed to be the Word of God. And others that love the same God, love the same Bible, believe it's the inerrant Word of God, have held that Genesis 1 doesn't limit God to necessarily literal 24-hour periods. And both groups have been Bible-loving, Christ-trusting, God-fearing individuals that believe the Bible to be the Word, which should give us pause and humility with our position, whatever it is that you hold, and require us to not hold our creation view as a, as a litmus test to see who's a true Christian and who isn't. I, I liken it to the conviction with which, which I hold my eschatology and end times view. Does it have value? Yes. Does it matter? Yes. Should we look into it as individuals and in chur- as a church at times? Yes. But it's not something to divide over or feel superior about. It's just not. I grew up hearing mostly about a literal 24-hour creation, which is understandable as the church was pushing back against an old earth philosophical, naturalistic, evolutionary worldview. So I'm talking about no God behind creation at all. Now later in life, I tend to lean a little bit more towards the days maybe being God's work days, maybe not literal 24 hours. There's all kinds of views on this. But even as there's been differences, here's what they've all agreed upon, and we have to all agree upon. Let's start with that. Let's start with some Genesis non-negotiables this morning, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of these views and move into the text today. Here's one. God sovereignly creates out of nothing by His Word. That's a non-negotiable. Whatever your view, young earth, old earth, literal 24-hour or not, we all must hold that God has existed forever He's created everything out of nothing. The phrase, maybe you've heard before, the Latin phrase, maybe ex nihilo, means out of nothing. He created everything out of nothing. There was no matter that existed before God. God is the only thing that's existed forever. And he created everything out of that nothingness by his word alone. He created all life and matter. That's not negotiable. 
He saw his sovereign glory as displayed, as Calvin said, in the theater of creation for his glory. That's why he did it. That's our first one. Here's our second one. We have to believe in the special and historical creation of Adam and Eve. If we don't, there's some problems there. We've got to believe there was a special time where Adam and Eve were created, real literal humans made from the dust of the earth, not macro-evolved from another species or creature. Because only the creature, humans, man and woman, were made in God's image and given the special task of overseeing creation. It's of gospel importance that Adam and Eve existed. Gospel importance. Because if you lose a literal Adam and Eve, you lose our final non-negotiable this morning, a historical fall. Historical fall. The Bible clearly teaches a real, original sin that took place by Adam and Eve that had far-reaching consequences for all of humanity, for you and I today in creation. We take away Adam and Eve in the fall. What happens to the gospel? What happens to our need of a Savior? What happens to what Jesus did on on the cross? It guts the gospel if we don't have a real Adam and Eve and a real historical fall. So so we must, I believe, as biblical Christians, hold to these non-negotiables. And I realize even today in a message like this, I won't meet everyone's hopes and expectations with a sermon like this today. It's impossible. Impossible in one sermon. And we're not going to actually spend our time hashing out all the different creation views. There's all kinds of resources you can look up on your own. I encourage you to do that. All kinds of articles you can find. But we're not going to do that. As I look at Genesis and I think of Moses' intent of writing it, I think too often we miss the forest, the whole thing, for the trees. We get too focused on the tree. We could spend all morning debating the how questions. How did he do it? How long did it take? And miss the why questions. or Why did he create? What's it for? What's our place in it? And most importantly, we could spend a whole morning and miss the who, the creator behind it. We could spend all morning arguing the different views, and we could miss the God behind creation. And I can't let us do that. We can't do that. Genesis 1, it's written as a grand, historical, historical song, kind of rhythmic and lyrical and even poetic, some have called us. And it's not written to focus as much on the how questions. It does but not as much on the how, but on the why. We can't press it too hard for scientific details when Moses never intended it to be read that way. It's written more like a broad stroke painting of beautiful colors. So that's how we're going to approach it. And I hope with charity and goodwill, where we may differ on timing or age of earth or how or how long, So let's move along the narrative this morning, even as God developed the matter, uh, the matter that he created as he spoke it into existence in real time and space. We're going to look first at the forming of the world. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again today. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The creation account. It's beautifully divided into these three days. Three days of forming, and then three days of filling. It's easy to remember it. 
forming and filling in these three days. Take a look at You see on the slide coming up behind me from a commentary that I was using this week. Here's what God does on these days. The first three are forming. So he, he, he forms the light, and then the counter day four, what does he fill it with? The luminaries, the, the sun, the moon, the stars. Day two, you see, he makes the sky, forms it, forms it, shapes it, and the water's below. We'll talk about that day today. And then day five, the corresponding day, he fills it with birds and fish. Day three, we see he kind of makes the land and the plants we'll get to today. He begins to form it, and right there he kind of starts filling. But what's he doing? He's getting ready to fill it with animals and humans, men and women. It's beautiful how he forms it to get it ready to fill it. We're going to look today at the first three days where God was creating to begin to bring that form, that raw matter that you notice he created in one and two. Verses one and two, there's something there that he made. He kind of makes it, and then he starts to form it. These days are going to be a response that God working to bring form out of the void. So we're going to look at the forming of the world. Here's our first thing we're going to see. God brings form out of the void. That's what he's doing. God is bringing form out of this void. It's kind of strange, and some commentators say, what is happening in verses 1 and 2? Why does God make this matter? It calls kind of a void and formless or a little bit chaotic, and, and, then, and then he creates matter that he'll further develop. The picture he gives us is of uh, some formless mass in verses 1 and 2. Picture it in your mind. Covered by dark waters, like, like some lump of clay on a potter's wheel, just ready to be molded, just crying out to, this is not what I'm gonna, the finished product is going to be, this lump of clay. Now, if God left creation right there, he would have stopped right there. It would have been good for him. He, he could survive there. He could make it there. He could last there. But guess what? It would not have been habitable for you or I, would it? This, this formless lump of clay, I think of an uninhabitable desert, a barren wasteland is the image that Moses is trying to, to, to spark for us, like a barren waste. Would you want to live life somewhere described as formless and void? I wouldn't. It doesn't sound very appealing or inviting. And right here, at the beginning, in verses 1 and 2, we have written into the story, into the narrative, a God who takes the darkness and the chaos of the cosmos and turns it into something habitable for you and I. A place where we can live. A place where you'll feel like, I belong here. I matter here. He transforms what's unprofitable, this lump of clay, into something profitable. It's a beautiful. Why does he do this? Why does he give us this dark picture, this kind of ominous before there uh, is light? Before he says, let there be light. Here's what I think he's doing. God is getting us ready for the idea that the final product will be better than the beginning when he starts with a lump of clay. That what was created first, the lump of clay, what will be happening, we'll see at the end, will be so much better. It parallels the message of the first five books of the Bible and actually the Bible as a whole. These first two verses as they go into verse 3. God saves his people, the Israelites, out of darkness and chaos of Egypt and by bringing them out to something better, towards blessing and rest. 
So what we're saying is the pattern of saving people, of redeeming people, is right here in verses 1 and 2, because he starts with a lump of clay and doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. The pattern of redemption right here in the beginning, a God who redeems you and I out of darkness, out of void, of sin, to something better. You know the verse, we're transferred from a kingdom of darkness to the glorious kingdom of light. God is always bringing form from void. He's bringing form from void. And that's what the first couple of verses are even saying. Here's this lump of clay, but just wait. You just wait. The end is even better than the beginning. He worked that way in the creating the world. Why do we doubt that he won't work that way in our life? He worked that way in making the world. Just wait. The end will be better than the beginning. He will work that way in our lives too. We, get, we can get that all from the first couple of verses of the Bible. He's building eschatology into creation, the end times. He's building it right into creation by starting with a lump of clay. It'll be better. You know, most religions of the world, you know what they say? They say heaven, heaven is escaping earth. Heaven is getting away from earth. And matter, the stuff of this world, is just bad. Most religions say that. But God created it out of nothing. And because he did, he gives it goodness and purpose and meaning as he forms it. And so only Christianity says, heaven's not escaping earth. Heaven will be God recreating this earth. You know, how many of us, when you think of heaven, think of escape? We just do, don't you? I mean, most of us, yeah, if you raise your hand, you're honest. How many of us think of heaven as like getting out of here? <laughs> the escape pod. Get me out of this place. And you're gone, right? Do you realize that the Bible is heaven is a city coming down to earth? A recreated earth? We've, been, we've thought po- poorly because when we die, yes, our soul leaves this earth for now. But heaven in the Bible is God redeeming this. This, uh, with a new heaven and an earth. Heaven is a, a city coming down this way, actually. It's a different way to think about the Bible. Our redeeming God who brings form out of the void is right here in Genesis 1 through 2, making a, a habitable community for us, a place where we feel welcome. Now, and then someday, a new heaven and a new earth. But why? Here's the forming of the world. Here's the second one. The community of God is welcoming in the community of humanity here. The community of God is welcoming us into this new place. What we have here in a picture of creation, we've got this picture of the triune God active in creation. Trinity is Father, Son, Spirit. One God in essence, but three, what do we call? Persons. Real persons. We've got a picture of that here. And this is why the Trinity is so important. God has actively existed for all time as one God in essence, yet a three-person community in perfect fellowship for all time, in perfect love for all eternity. This is how God has existed. And at some point in time, don't know when that is, if you do, come talk to me, at some point in time, he decided to expand that circle and create and create, make, and welcome us into that circle. 
That's why the Trinity is so important. Uh, uh, the religion of Islam does not start with a loving God because if you're one in essence but not in person, how do you have love? Have you ever thought about that? We have a one God in essence in three persons. It's a community. He's welcoming us into that. Creation is about community because God in himself is community. You know, verse 1, in the beginning God created in the beginning, God created. Even right there, Moses uses the plural form of, of God. It kind of says God, Elohim, and yet singular for created. It's really interesting how he uses the Hebrew to kind of make us go, what? Huh? We know God is one, but why does he use the plural there? And here also, we have the Spirit hovering over the water. Did you catch that? Not some impersonal force or some gas, but, but the word for spirit hovering there is ever only used of a mother bird in, Bible, in the Bible. Do you know that? A mother bird. All of a the sudden, there's this darkness, and hovering over it is a life-giving spirit, like a mother bird hovering over her babies, just watching over. It's the community of God getting ready to welcome in the community of humanity. But you might say, okay, well, there's the Father, okay, there's God, okay. There's the Spirit. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Let's get to the days to find out. Day one, here we go. Let's look at day one. Here's the thing we want to pull out of day one. That God, God personally creates through Speech, through speech. Didn't have to, I don't think. You probably could have just a thought and it would have happened. But Moses is really careful to make sure we see through speech. Verse 3 says, and God said, said, let there be light. And it was so. There was light. Eight times in the creation account, it says, and God said. You think Moses is trying to make a point there for us? He could have just said it right at the top. Eight times in this little creation account, it says, and God said. God said. With a mere utterance of his words, he creates. And it's actually true of only God. This word for create is really only ever used of, of God. When you and I say, let there be a cup of coffee, what do we have to do? You gotta grind the beans. You gotta get it ready. You gotta get fresh water. You gotta put it in. You gotta plug it in. You gotta hit power on it and get that coffee going. We gotta make it happen. We gotta get things ready. We're using the things we already have water and beans and putting it all together. When God says it, it just happens. No preparation. There's no second, third, fourth steps. It just happens. And it did. Moses said, and it was so. And it happened. Light was instantly scattering the darkness in that moment. His word, in and of itself, has power, you might say. It's an agent, you might say. His word creates. We learn something when we get to the Gospel of John. And it's so interesting how John clearly writes John 1.1, in the beginning, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the Word. He intentionally ties us right back into these verses. Here's the verses coming up from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Does that make you think of creation at all? Day one of creation at all? In the beginning, God created with his word. In the beginning was the word Jesus. The passage goes on to say, nothing was created without him, without Jesus. You'll read more verses in your life group this week. But God's word alone actually can create because his word is a person. His word is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the word of God. It's present and active in creation with the Father and the Spirit. Do you know the Bible begins and ends with light, but no source for that light like the sun. Did you know that? The Word is the light. He's life. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. So also in day one, we see He illumines with His light. His own self-emanating light. Do you see how creation is, uh, is imbued or, or just filled with the Trinity? Father, Son, Spirit, intimately uttering and, and, and breathing it into existence. A world making it habitable, forming it so we could be brought into the circle. So you could be brought into the community of the Trinity. And have an intimate relationship like he has in himself with him. All that's wrapped, you ever think all that's wrapped up in the first three verses of the Bible? It's there. It's incredible. And this world he makes to shine a light on himself. That's the why. To showcase his glory. Paul writes in Romans, For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain, it's clear, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so that we're without excuse. God is saying that everything he's made to some degree was made to reflect his glory, to show who he is, to mirror to the world. His eternal power and divine nature, Paul says, is clear from creation. And so nature has been made to enter into that, that song, you might call it, of pointing people to God, that song of the Trinity in Genesis 1. And what it's doing, it's shouting the beauty of its maker. That's why it's here. It's shouting the beauty of its maker. Psalm 19, we read it in the prayer. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims its handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The purpose of nature is to sing a song. To sing a song about God. About who he is. Their song is this. God is good. You think creation's beautiful? You should see our maker. That's their song. It's a number one hit, right? What do you think of when you're standing over one of Oregon's powerful, majestic rivers as we were this summer? There's a picture coming up. What do you think of when you see that? I was blown away. This was, one, this was one of the prettier ones. I forget what bridge that is. It's one of the big wooden bridges out towards where were we headed? I forget. 
Yeah, Roseburg, yeah, down south. Um, well, what do you think of when you're standing over one of Oregon's powerful, majestic rivers? What comes to your mind? Or, or looking out over Crater Lake as we did this summer? I mean, what pops into your head? Why is nature so moving to you and I? I mean, for anyone who says this morning, you might think, well, maybe there's no God. I'm not sure. Why is it that when you look at creation, it's like you hear music and you're moved by it? You know in your heart someone made it, that's why. You know it. We know it. I know it. You know it. They had to. You know it deep in your heart. You know, we always think the burden of proof uh, rests on the Christian. The burden of proof rests on the Christian, with pro- and with problems like the existence of evil in the world, it does. We have to have a good, as best we can, biblical answer for that. But don't think that just because you say there's no God, or you might think that, that you're off the hook. The atheist has the problem of beauty to deal with. We might have the problem of evil to deal with as Christians, but those who say there's no God or might not think there is one, they have just as much a problem with the beauty of creation to deal with. Why are you captivated by a sunset or a waterfall or getting out on the open road as some of us like to do? Why does that pull us in? Do you want to see proof for God? Drive by Willamette Falls any time of any day, and what are people saying they're doing? Standing and staring. Any time of the day, really, you drive by there. We're drawn towards creation. We're drawn towards nature because nature is drawing us towards God. That's what it meant to do. Singing, he's good, he loves you, he's here, flashing neon lights in the sky. I couldn't make it any more clear for you. I'm here. But he calls it good and he moves on to day two, so let's move on. Day two, what does he do? God divides things, begins to divide. He already started kind of in day one with darkness and light and evening and morning. He divides and names. So he does some more forming. We're still forming things. He's still forming and more forming so he can fill it with creatures like us. He does this great dividing, a great separating, much like he did with the light and dark. He speaks again, speech again. And he creates an expanse, the Bible calls it. And he separates the waters above and waters below the land. It's a strange, still picture. This is probably the description of God as a view from the earth, him creating the atmosphere of, of visibility from earth to sky. Maybe up to this point it was all fog and foggy, and now we've got this blue sky, maybe. That's what some commentators think is happening here. And he says it. And it was so. That's a, that's a big division, isn't it, to make in a day? This division of, of the land and the water above it and below it. But the language here is even stronger than the division of the first light and darkness. It's even a different word than the one for light and darkness. Because those would be alternating. That, that, that division would go back and forth, wouldn't it? Night, day, light, dark. This one's fixed forever. The earth and the water and the water and their places. And God names the expanse. He calls it heaven. Do you know why we've got a naming there? Because of the pagan, heaven was theirs. The pagan gods, that was their domain at this time. So God shows his sovereignty by not only naming it, but dividing it and put it exactly where he wants it. In this little creation act, which is really a big act, 
It's his domain. I control this. I'm the one that gets to divide it. I'm the one that gets to name it, heaven and earth. It's mine. Thus showing us in reality that God is the sovereign Lord who can set any distinction he wants. He can divide anything every, any way he wants. He can separate anything any way he wants. And he was about to do that, wasn't he? Remember when Moses wrote this? They're wandering. Isn't he about to set up a lot of distinctions for them in the law? Do this, don't do that. Go here, don't go there. Eat this, don't eat that. We get this separation right here where Moses says, God's the one who divides. God's the one that gets to separate. God's the one that gets to make distinctions, and he did that in the law for them. This is the God who can divide the water and land. So if he gives us some other things to say and divide, if he wants to make distinctions elsewhere, do you see how brash we are as humanity (laughs) when we push back against the distinctions that God has made? and question what he has divided and separated? If he says one thing is good and the other is evil, it's his prerogative. He told the earth and the sky where to go. Think about that. If he wants to separate us and make us into male and female, and then divide responsibilities even and characteristics, it's his prerogative. He told the earth and the sky where to go. If he wants to say, you're my child, divide yourself from all evil. Here's what Ephesians says. God, get rid of all bitterness. There it is. Divide yourself. Separate from it. Rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. It's his prerogative. He told the water and sky where to go. If he can divide darkness and light and land and sky, he gets to set up this world. He gets to make the distinctions of this world. As he did, now we move to the little bit of filling. From forming to just a little bit of filling he starts here. Let's look at day three. God forms, then he fills. So we get to day three. We don't really get any new creation here but a final kind of forming. He's getting it ready to be hospitable, as we said, remember? He's welcoming us in to his community of the Trinity in creation, and he's taking something that's like a lump of clay, saying, just wait, it's going to be even better, making it more hospitable. And so dry land appears. He names it earth, and the seas are named, and they're given their boundaries too. The sea must stay here. And he says to the earth, it kind of translates like vegetate vegetation, Vegetate, vegetation, earth. I picture this lush, green surface, or I like as one commentator translated it, let the earth be covered with a fresh, green mantle of verdure. What is that? Let's just call it what it is. It's Oregon, right? That's what he's saying there. God's country. Now we've gone from this lump of clay on the potter's wheel to this lush, green earth. Now it's starting to sound like our place, isn't it? Now it's starting to sound like a place you'd want to live. And he calls it good twice here. Day three, it's all good. It's all good. What does that mean that God calls it good? Have you ever seen a Cutsforth? Kids, how many of you go into Cutsforth? Yeah, and oh, some adults, you've been there too. Okay, good. 
I guess if kids got there without the adults, that wouldn't be good. So I'm glad you're there too. You've been to Cuts first, and you've seen the guys, they're, they're setting out the fruit. What do they do? They're, they got a big box here. They do a quick glance at it, don't they? Quick glance. They can maybe squish it once. And then in their mind, they say, ah, that's good. That passes inspection. They set it on the shelf. That's good. Is that what God's doing here? No. When God calls it good, he's, he's enjoying it. He's loving it. He's saying it's good. It's like taking a bite of your favorite dessert, right? Or a great cup of coffee. You don't just go, eh, you go, no, you savor it. It's good. You might even go, hmm, you should try this. That's what God is doing here. God is enjoying creation. He's enjoying what he's made. And that means you and I can too. You and I can too. The doctrine of God's creation says that the, 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 the material world he's given us, it's okay to experience it for pleasure. It's good. God's enjoying it, so we can too. But we also know it's not here by chance. We know he made it, so that means we can't base our whole life upon it. It can't be the only place we pursue pleasure. The physical world can't be everything to us, so we can't ultimately live for it because somebody made it. It's not an end in and of itself. But we can enjoy it. It's okay. Sometimes as Christians, we get so wrapped up, you know, pleasure is this bad, dirty word. And God says, oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's goodness is to point us to his goodness calling us towards him. And deep down inside, you know that. You look at creation. We see how good it is. And I love, I was reading one commentary this week, and he was pointing to C.S. Lewis, and we're going to go there too. Because C.S. Lewis said, you look at it, you see how good it is, and yet you realize you just can't quite enjoy it the way you know you were supposed to. It's like you look at it, you see it, and he describes the beauty as almost painful in a way. Ever had that moment? It's like, oh, it's so beautiful, but there's like this tinge in my heart that says there's more. It's kind of the, 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 the pain of beauty. Here's what, he, here's what Lewis said. At present, we're on the outside. We're on the wrong side of the door. Does that sound like anything? Narnia? We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they don't make us fresh and pure. We do not merely see beauty, though God knows. Even that's bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. It's painful because it calls us in, but we can't quite get there. Something's in the way. We're on the other side of the door, he describes it. We can't uh, sing the same song as creation even though we can kind of hear it because we've chosen to what? Be the Lord of our own little lives. Next Sunday, we're going to see that God makes humanity and he calls them very good. Not just good, very good. We were meant to live in perfect relationship in the creation with him. Be part of the beautiful choir of creation, but you can't, can you? We've got a big problem, don't we? You can't. So how do we get through the door? How do you get through the door? Genesis 1 gives us a clue the Gospel of John gives us the answer, the Word. The Word, the powerful Word that was created, it goes on. 
He took on flesh. He became part of the world. He took on flesh. He takes on a physical body. And then when he gets to the cross, do you know what happens? The very opposite of what happened in creation. He uses his word and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happens? Silence. Nothing. The spirit is not hovering over that moment. Not in that way. Silence. On the cross, the very opposite of what we just went through today happened for you and me. Do you see that? Jesus, the one who made it all, goes out to the empty and the void for you. He goes out to the chaos for you. As one commentator said, the Spirit was not hovering over him at that moment. He was decreated, uncreated, so you could be made whole. So you could be created. So you could be made new. He was torn apart so you could be made whole. That's how you get through the door. That's how we get back to the song that we know is there and we can't quite sing and hear, but we know it's there. And when you put your faith in that, God can look at you again now and say, because of the work of Jesus, oh, you're very good because of Jesus' goodness. You know there's more to it than we just see, don't you? You know it. Be made whole, be put back together in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know creation is beautiful. We know it points to you, and yet we can't quite, we can't quite enjoy it, we know, as it was meant to be enjoyed. Because the fellowship with you is broken, so too our relationship with creation is broken. But Jesus, you show us even today that the Word became flesh. The one who created took on a body. The one who created was torn in two for us. He was broken so we could be made whole through forgiveness with Him. So Jesus, give us a fresh view of creation. Give us a fresh view of you, God. The God who's taking the formless and void and making it into, oh, oh, something so much better. We wait for that better. Christ, then we pray. Amen.